Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Would you bow with me? Father, we've already gotten a taste of what's coming. And for all the darkness and heaviness and somberness that is in this world, it is a great day of expectation that is coming for us. It is a great day when you in heaven and Christ on earth will act definitively and finally to introduce your kingdom purposes and the final end of your eternal plan. Oh, Father, it's a great day of expectation. It is a day of our hope. It is a day of our confidence. Might you give us satisfaction in it as we begin to contemplate it this morning. And might it invigorate us to stand firm in these days while we wait for that day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I loved my mom a lot. She was a tremendous gift of God's grace to me. But she had one habit that I just could never follow through and copy and imitate what she did, though I understood kind of what she did. One day I saw her reading a book, and I knew that she had just picked up that book earlier that day, and as I looked at it, she was like at the end of the book. And I said, wow, Mom, you have like blazed through that book. That's amazing. Oh, no, 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 no. I just started it. I'm reading the last chapter first. What? You can't do that. You can't. You'll spoil the ending. Oh, no, no. I need to find out if the ending is good, because if it's not a good ending, I don't want to waste my time reading the book. I love my mom. And I understand why she did that. I just couldn't get myself to do that, kind of, until today. Because today, 
we start getting the end of God's story. And the end of God's story and the final revelation of what He will do in history to bring to a culmination His salvation and redemptive plan is what gives us hope to endure and to persist. It is, it is true that life has hard and harsh moments. But the revelation of what is coming is a reminder to us that for the believer in Christ, it can only end well. And that's what we find in Zechariah 12 to 14. You'll recall the last few weeks we've been in Zechariah chapter 11, and that is not only one of the more difficult parts of the book of Zechariah, it has been called the most difficult chapter in the Old Testament. It is fraught with all kinds of interpretive difficulties, and on top of that, it is heavy and it is somber. It is a downer of a chapter, if you will. And everything that chapter 11 is, as far as discouragement and somberness and heaviness, chapters 12 to 14 are that encouraging and that hopeful. And as we begin this final section of the book of Zechariah, I want us to be pointed this morning to one singular verse, chapter 12, verse 1, where we will find that as sovereign creator, God has authoritative right to speak. God is the singular authority over all that is created and as that one sovereign over all of creation, creation above, creation below, inanimate creation and animated creation and particularly human beings, He is sovereign over all of it and as sovereign, He has definitive right to speak with authority. And what does he say? His declaration is that he will fulfill his promises. That's definitive. That's authoritative. It comes from the only one who is sovereign, the only one who is able to make a promise and keep it absolutely. One of the main words that we're going to find, one of the main phrases that we're going to find in chapters 12 to 14, and we're going to be seeing it today in chapter 12, is the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord actually, as a phrase, doesn't appear in the book of Zechariah, but Zechariah used a shortened form of it, that day. And he keeps talking about that day. That, that day has already been revealed in the book of Zechariah. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 11 for the first time, where it said, Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. And he's looking forward to the ultimate day, the final day, the day of the Lord. And he says, And they will become my people. We've also seen that same phrase in chapter 3, chapter 8, and chapter 9. So we've seen it four or five times in these initial chapters. And in chapters 12 to 14, that phrase, that day, will appear 22 times. And it is the foundation of everything that he's going to say in these chapters, this hopeful coming day of the Lord. 
The phrase denotes that day, the day of the Lord, that God is going to act for Israel in the final day, the day of the eschatological future. Eschatology or eschatological simply refers to last things, last days. The question as we come to this text simply is this. What is his right to act? On what basis can God say, I have a right to say, this is the way it's going to go. And how do we know that this is the way it's going to go? Well, let's consider that this morning. Thinking, first of all, about that phrase, that day. We see it first in verse 3. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And we'll see it multiple other times in this chapter. When he uses that phrase, that day, referring to the day of the Lord, what is he referring to? Well, let's think first of all about the Old Testament use of the day of the Lord. How does the Old Testament think about the day of the Lord? When the Old Testament uses that phrase, what does it mean? And it means fundamentally three things. First of all, it means that the day of the Lord is anticipating a judgment that is coming soon. So when the prophet speaks, there's a sense of immediacy to the coming of the judgment. That is, the the judgment is going to happen within the relative time frame in which the prophet is speaking. Like it's now. In fact, we find an example of that, the day of the Lord in Obadiah. In verses 8, 10, 14, 15 of the book of Obadiah, he uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, and it's anticipating the destruction of Edom, a destruction that did indeed happen in about 845 B.C. We find Amos in chapter 5, Amos 5, 18 and 20, using that same phrase, the day of the Lord, to refer to Israel's captivity in Assyria in 722 and Indeed, they were taken captive by Assyria in 722. We find Isaiah using that same phrase in Isaiah chapter 13. Let me just read it for you. Isaiah chapter 13, to refer to the captivity of Judah, the southern tribes of Israel, to Babylon. So Isaiah 13, it says in verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon or the declaration concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then we read this in verses 5 and 6. They are coming from a far country. Who? Babylon. They're coming from a far country, from the furthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation, that is Babylon, as God's instrument of indignation to destroy the whole land. Whale... For the day of the Lord is near, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So as Isaiah is talking, he uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, and he's referring to it as Babylon is coming now to take you into captivity because of your rebellion. So sometimes when we see that phrase, the day of the Lord, it's referring to something that's going to happen in the relative time frame in which the prophet speaks. It's also used in the Old Testament, and this is by far the more significant usage of it. It's anticipating a judgment in the future and typically in the long distant future. And so we find the judgment of the nations in Joel chapter 2 verse 31 in the tribulation. Um, 
Joel chapter 2. If you're looking for that, find the book of Daniel, the last major prophet, Hosea, Joel. Joel is the second minor prophet. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That wasn't fulfilled then, but even Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, anticipating the day of tribulation when the nations will be judged by God. It's also used not just of the tribulation, but Joel also uses it in chapter 3, that same phrase, the day of the Lord, to refer to the judgment of the nations at the battle of Armageddon. And so we find this this use of the day of the Lord often in the Old Testament to refer to a time when God will come and judge the nations. And it's referring to a time that is way off, far off in the distance. Sometimes those two senses, the near judgment and the far judgment, are used in the same context. And it's hard to tell Is he talking near or is he talking far? And we have an example of that actually in Zechariah chapter 13. So you can just look over the other side of the page. 13.1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, in the day of the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered and I will also remove the prophets and the unclean from the land. There's going to be spiritual purification for the nation of Israel. And all idolatry is going to be removed from the land. This is a place where you're allowed to say amen. Can you imagine the removal of all idolatry? In that same context, he says, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What's that talking about? That's the crucifixion of Christ. And so you have in Just a few verses, this sense of that day, one is looking way out into the future and one is looking at the crucifixion of Christ. And so you got to be careful as you're looking at these. Is it looking way off, a little bit off, or is it looking immediate? And context is going to help us with that. And so as we are thinking about the day of the Lord, typically what we're talking about is God's judgment against the nations in particular and at times against his people Israel as well. Why is that? Well, the judgment is because God has created the world so that he could rule the world through mankind that was created in his image. That's Genesis 1. What happened? Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? The introduction of sin and the fall of mankind. And man's rebellion against God's authority. And so the story of history from Genesis 3 forward is God's work to renew and redeem mankind. To make possible God's successful dominion over all of his viceroys. If his kingdom would have dominion, 
The rebellious kingdoms of the world have to be put down. That's why there's got to be judgment. All the enemies have to be vanquished. There can only be one king. And the defeat of all the other kings and the establishment of the one great king is the story of the day of the Lord. All the kings are gone and only one rules, our king. So God's judgment of the nations is the outworking of the principle that God will not give his glory with another. He alone is sovereign and he will judge all pretenders to his throne. That's coming in the day of the Lord. There's one other aspect to the day of the Lord. and It's actually one of the things that dominates the book of Zechariah. It's not just judgment, but the day of the Lord also anticipates future blessing. And the blessing will be for the nations. So that blessing is something in which the nations will find themselves attracted and desiring. We saw this in chapter 8, verse 22. Many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days... Ten men from all the nations will grasp at the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And they're thinking, we want into Christ's kingdom. That's what's being pictured there. And we find that not only for the nations, but there's also blessing for the nation of Israel. So Joel will say in chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, verse 21, 20 and 21. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. So there's blessing coming for the nation of Israel and there's blessing coming for the nations. So take all those ideas and summarize it. And when you think about the day of the Lord, the Old Testament typically is using it in this way. It's referring to judgment. Judgment is coming. Sometimes near, generally far, but judgment is coming. God will take care of the enemies. And through that judgment, blessing will come to his people. So how does Zechariah use that? term. I'm glad you asked. Again, the phrase the day of the Lord does not appear in the book of Zechariah, but the repeated use of the phrase that day is very obviously a reference to the day of the Lord. And generally, Zechariah is looking to the ultimate day, the final day, not anything near, but something that is far. We saw that already in chapter 2. I've alluded to that, right? Many nations will join themselves to the Lord. They will become my people. And then I will dwell in your midst. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, Messiah, to you. So Messiah will come. Messiah will reign. Messiah will be on his throne. And the nations also will be attracted to that Messiah. And the Messiah will live with them. Creation purpose is reestablished. Why did God create mankind? So that he would be with them. Why did Christ come? He came as Emmanuel so he would be with them, with his people. And this is the time when he will be with them in that day. And so 
the day of the Lord in chapter 2 is looking at judgment. Yeah, there will be judgment, but it's looking beyond the judgment to the final blessings associated with the millennial kingdom. Chapter 3, we find the same phrase again, verses 8 and following. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends were sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are my men who are assembled. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Sin vanquished, removed from the land of Israel. In that day, verse 10, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Massive conversion of the nation of Israel in the day of the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 23. We've already alluded to this. Thus says the, day, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord who is almighty, the sovereign God. In those days, ten men from the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you. We have heard that the Lord is with you. So it's anticipating the involvement of the nations in the promise of God in the millennial kingdom in that final time. Chapter 9, verse 16. And the Lord their God will save them, speaking about Israel, will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. So as a nation, the nation will be saved in an act of massive conversion. And that's exactly what we find repeated over and over and over again in chapters 12 to 14. The king is coming. He'll set up his throne and there will be blessing in it. The nations will be vanquished. Let me steal a little bit of my thunder from a couple months from now. 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. The king is coming in that day. And that's what Zechariah particularly is looking for. So while this term, the day of the Lord, is a judgment word, Zechariah is saying, yeah, it's judgment, but because of judgment, there's blessing coming. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And that's what we're going to find repeatedly throughout this section. Where does the day of the Lord fit in God's prophetic plan? Now, this is like eight or ten or twelve sermons. Let me see if I can do it in like three to five minutes, okay? Just... Just to give you a time frame, I, this, is, this is the time chart, if you will, about where we're going. This is God's history from this point forward. What's happening in his prophetic plan and where does the day of the Lord fit that? So this isn't everything. I'm not defending anything. I'm not giving explanations of every, anything. But this is, this is the overflow, over, overview of it. This isn't 30,000 feet. This is like 300,000 feet fly over. All right. So what's next? What's next is the rapture. First Thess 110, First Thessalonians 4, 13, 18. Keith just taught on this a few weeks ago in Sunday school. All believers taken to heaven 
And all that happens on the earth is without us. Okay, so everything from this point forward, everything that's going to continue on in this list, believers are gone. Now, there will be believers that convert after that. And they'll stay through the duration unless they're martyred. But for us, everything that's following that I'm about to tell is without us. We've been raptured out. We've been taken out. And I know you've got six questions. We don't have time today. That's another day. Or listen to Keith's audio on chapter 4. After that comes the tribulation. And the tribulation is one of the aspects of the day of the Lord. So Jesus talks about that in Matthew 24 and 25. That the, the great tribulation that's coming is connected to God's wrath against the nations, against Israel. And it's the pouring out of his judgment against the earth. Not final judgment, but anticipatory of final judgment. In fact, we saw that. Um, a little bit in chapter 11, just last week. Behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, who will not seek the scattered. He will not heal the broken or sustain the one standing, but he will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. That's what happens under the authority of the Antichrist during the tribulation. That's part of God's judgment against the nation of Israel. Following that, we have the battle of Armageddon. That's the day of the Lord as well. That's another aspect of it. Other scriptures talk about that. The, the day of Armageddon or the battle of Armageddon is the Antichrist's vain battle against Christ to try and defeat Christ. We find that in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. And when the Antichrist is defeated simply by a word from Christ, I don't know what he's going to say, but it's going to simply be a word. He speaks, the sword comes out of his mouth. I don't know this. This is my interpretation, but I think it's something like this. You're dead. (laughs) And that's all it takes. And he's dead. And then following that, we have the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of the Lord and those who had not worshipped the beast of his image and they had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the kingdom of Christ. Christ Ruling from the Davidic throne, fulfilling the promises of all of the Old Testament. Note that here in the millennial kingdom, anticipating that and coming into it, the nations will be judged, Christ's kingdom will be established, and it is His work. We don't bring in the kingdom. Christ brings in Christ's kingdom. And there is... There is currently a resurgence of this idea of what's called post-millennialism, which means that that the world's got to get better and better spiritually, and then Christ will come when the world is saved, and then He will take His throne. It's like we do all the work, and then He comes to the throne. Oh, brothers and sisters, we can't do it. We can't do it. And in fact, I hope you heard it in the text as I was reading. Behold, I... I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling. 
Verse 3, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot. Verse 7, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. We'll bring in the kingdom for you, Jesus. No. I don't need your help. It's not about your glory. It's about my glory. My worship. And... There are implications that come from that. I'm going to save that for now. He will set up his millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom also is looking forward to the day of the Lord. Satan's final protest will be put down. That's Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment and Satan and all unbelievers are condemned into the lake of fire. Um, Made a typo on that point there it's the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire and then this and he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. So could they come in, brothers and sisters? And the Lord's bringing it. It's His day. And He will bring it. And we can be confident. That's what's coming. What does Zechariah think about all those things? Where, does, where do those key elements of God's prophetic plan integrate themselves into the book of Zechariah? Well, let me just give you another high flyover. One, we find God's discipline and judgment of Israel. We find that in chapter 10. We find it in chapter 11. And there are judgments that are spoken of in Israel with non-specific reference to time. So it's just saying there's judgment coming, but he's not specific about when that will be. And those references in 10 and 11 are to that. There's also God's judgment of the nations. We saw that way back in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. I was very angry with the nations who were at ease. For a while I was only a little angry, but they furthered the disaster. In other words, they disciplined Israel too harshly. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion and my house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line, a a standard, a, a, a judgment line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So God judges the nations again. Some of those judgments in Zechariah are nonspecific in relation to time. There is God's restoration of Israel. We saw that. I just read it in verse 16 of chapter 1. 
We also see the spiritual cleansing of Israel. That's chapter 13, 1 and following. Uh, Though we understand from chapter 13 that that's going to refer to the millennial kingdom. There is also God's salvation of the nations. So the nations are going to be folded into some of these promises. So not everybody in every nation, but there will be representatives from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Zechariah also refers to the battle of Armageddon, the end of the tribulation. We'll find that in chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And then the return of Christ, chapter 14, verses 3 and following, and the millennial kingdom. So all of that, Zechariah sees. Now, Zechariah is not identifying it as he's going through. He's not saying, this is this and this is that. You've got to put all of the scriptures together in order to get that. But, but Zechariah has quite a full-orbed view of what's coming in the future. That's all introduction. Here's a question. What's God's authority to act in that day? On what basis can God say, this is the way it's going to be? And how do we know? The year before I married Regine, I was in seminary. Lived with two other guys uh, who were also seminary students. And we were, um, shall I say, not exactly the same in relation to how we kept the apartment. Now, I'm not a cleaning fanatic. Regine will tell you that. I've been banished from bathrooms. Bathrooms are not part of my domain. Uh, I'm not allowed because I don't keep them clean enough. So I'm I'm not a clean fanatic. But these guys were ridiculous. One guy would cook something for dinner time and the next day I'd go to the stove and the leftovers would still be on the pot 24 hours later. And you can imagine what the bug situation was in the apartment. That same guy, I lived with him for nine months, never washed his sheets. Oh yeah. Now in... In his wisdom, or perhaps it was his mother's wisdom, they were chocolate brown <laughs> before he didn't wash them. So I moved out, and he took those sheets and wadded them up and threw them away and bought another set. I don't know if they were chocolate brown or not. I went into the bathroom one day, and on the counter, 50 razors. And he just... Instead of just saying, I'll throw it in the trash can, he leaves it on the counter. It it was ridiculous. So we all went home for Christmas. And when we got back, I was the first one back. And I took that as an opportunity to write some house rules about how we were going to keep the apartment from that time forward. And I posted it in a prominent place. Guy number two comes back, and I'm just kind of waiting. I'm in the living room. What's he going to say? He walks by, puts his stuff away, comes back by, hear him stop in the hallway, and he's reading the list. And he comes in the living room and he says, Who put that up? I did. On whose authority? Mine. Okay, well, that's fine. I was just wondering. 
Did I really have authority? And by the way, I don't take that as a good way to resolve conflict. I have grown in my understanding of conflict resolution since then. Did I really have authority? No. But it's a valid question, isn't it? When somebody writes something down, when somebody declares and says, this is the way it's going to be, on whose authority? Who has the right for you? How do you have the right to say what you've just said? How do we know that it's going to come true? Does God have the authority to say there's a day coming when I'll make it right? And the nation of Israel is back in the land, right? So the Babylonian captivity is over as Zechariah is writing this. And they're rebuilding the temple. The temple is at least halfway done by the time this is being written, perhaps even a little bit more. Things are progressing, but they're still living with a tenuousness. Not everybody is back in the land. They still have opposition. And they've still got to be wondering, how do we know it's going to get better? On what basis do we know that God and His day are going to come and set this thing up? Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now that word burden is a word that we've seen before. We saw it in chapter 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus and on it goes to the rest of the territory in that area. It's, it's a burden. It's an oracle. It's a statement against someone. Now here the word burden doesn't mean oracle in the sense of against, but it, but it can mean in a secondary sense, a declaration. This is God's declaration and it is for Israel. It is on behalf of Israel. It is about Israel. This is the nations, 9, and, nine 10 and 11. And now what does God say about Israel? What's his future for the nation of Israel? He's not against Israel. In fact, these chapters are going to tell us there is no one that is so pro-Israel as God. He's made a promise regarding them and he will keep it. Says one commentator, these chapters are among the most important to be found in the prophetic scriptures. They're tremendously hopeful, both for Israel and then ultimately for us. What we need to notice is not just that something is being said, but we need need to notice and pay particular attention to who is speaking the burden of the word of Yahweh. This is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. It's the most important name for God. It's the one that's used in reference to all of the covenants that he made, starting with Abraham, And it is the revelation of his firmness to keep his word. And Zechariah says this oracle, this declaration is coming from him. It is coming from the mind and the mouth of the Lord alone. It is his singular authority that is speaking and no one else. And in case the readers didn't capture it, Notice what he says in the next phrase. Thus declares the Lord. 
Again, Yahweh speaks. What's interesting is that word declares is a common word for speech. It's used 586 times in the Old Testament. So it's like way common. 576 of the 586 times. I don't know how many points that is percentage-wise, but it's 99 points something. Percent of the time, it's used by the prophets. It's a prophetic word. It's a prophetic declaration. So it means that God is not just saying this is what's going to happen. It is God speaking with authority. It's not just predictive. It's firm. It's unrelenting. And so Zechariah would have us understand that the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is speaking. And he's not only demanding, but in this context, he's promising. He's saying, here is something that is coming. And the nation, with all of its fragility and uncertainty as they're rebuilding the temple, what's going to happen? Will the Babylonians return? Will the Medo-Persians come? Will they take us away? Will someone else take us away? Will we survive? These words are a firm declaration that God will do what He says and He will preserve His people. It's firm. Says one commentator, chapters 12 and 13 as a whole are about the restoration of God's covenant relationship with Israel and it will be accomplished from God's side. He himself will do it. And the way he introduces himself in this verse indicates that it will be no mean feat. In fact, it will be a work comparable to the creation of the world. God speaks. What's his authority? He gives three bases for his authority that I'll summarize in two statements. He's authoritative because he is the sovereign creator of all things. Thus says the Lord. Who's the Lord? On what basis can he say it? And Zechariah tells us, thus declares the Lord, the one who stretches out the heavens. He's like the the person who's erecting a tent and he takes that tent and he lays it out on the ground and he stretches it on the ground and then he raises it so the canvas is taut and tight and it's secure and it's firm. The Lord has put everything in the heavens in his place. That's Genesis 1.1. He not only has stretched out the heavens and he has done it with ease. Did you catch that? In Psalm 8... When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, the work of your fingers, it's like God just said, there, there's the universe. That's how much effort it took him. It's on that authority. And it's not just that he lays out the heavens, but he also lays out the foundation of the earth. Again, Genesis 1. And he's drawing this picture of heaven on high and earth below. From the furthest to the nearest. From the greatest to the smallest. God's made it all. If you see it, it's his and no one else's. Here's the key. 
To say that God is the creator establishes his right to do his will with his creation. He has the ability and the right to act in the day of the Lord because he's the creator. It's his No one can resist him because from the very first moment of time, his sovereign authority has been established. Only he is king. And he's going to demonstrate that in the day of the Lord. Interestingly, these same phrases are also used by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Excuse me, Isaiah 51. I've been doing that all week. Isaiah 51, verse 13. I, even I, am he who comforts you. I'm starting in verse 12. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the, of the earth. That you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy But where is the fury of the oppressor? So Isaiah takes those same phrases, points to creation, says God is sovereign over it. And because of that, why are you afraid? Yeah, there is fury from people who are oppressing. But where is it? In other words, how can they stand before the one who is the sovereign creator? Don't fear. And the nation of Israel, when they heard these words from Zechariah, had also to think about Isaiah and be reminded of the fact that they in 520 B.C. had nothing to fear about. The Lord was coming and he was speaking with authority about his coming. They had nothing to fear from the nations. And brothers and sisters, neither do we. There is no fear for us as well. There's another aspect to God's authority to act. It's given to us in the last phrase in verse 1. It is that he is sovereign creator, not only of all things, but of all mankind. And he forms the spirit of man within him. He not only is over all of inanimate creation, he's also the one who animates, gives life to all creation. Again, that's Genesis 1. He breathes into man His spirit. He gives physical life to man. Acts chapter 17 tells us in verse 25, he not only gives physical life, but he gives man a soul. And I think that's what's being talked about here in verse 1. He he not only gives physical life to man, but he makes man a two-part creature, physical life and spiritual life, a body and a soul. And he provides everything for that man. God not only creates... He not only creates mankind, he not only gives mankind a soul, but he constantly sustains all of his creation. It's not only it's not just that God said, "Okay, poof, there it is. Okay, now it's on its own. But Hebrews one tells us he sustains all things. What? By the word of his power. What's that? Keep going. That's all it takes. God just says, keep going. And it keeps going. That's the word of his power. So this phrase at the end, he forms the spirit of a man within him, says that God is sovereign because God has made man and made him a spiritual being. 
There's also a hint here. It's a hint at his regenerating power, his soul-saving power. It's not explicit in that text, but Paul makes it explicit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God who created the physical world is the one who also created the spiritual world and recreates us spiritually when we've wandered away from Him. He gives spiritual life to us. So God is the creator of physical life, spiritual life, And as the Israelites read this verse, it had to be a massive encouragement to them. Because of his control, they did not need to fear the nations. He would fulfill his promises. He would fulfill his I wills. And he had every right to do so. They're safe. God has spoken. He has a right to speak. And we can be confident in what he says. That's where we're headed over the next couple, three months. Why is it important that we spend time meditating on these things? Why is it important to think about Christ's coming and Christ's return? Because, brothers and sisters, we live in hard days, don't we? Second Timothy Chapter 3 tells us, but realize this. In the last days, it's going to get easier and easier, and you won't believe how kind people will be to you who are unregenerate. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what it says. But realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and revilers, and disobedient to parents, and ungrateful, and unholy, and unloving, and on and on it goes. It's a picture of 2023. It's a hard world. And brothers and sisters, we need to meditate on this because it is a reminder to us that despite the growing hardship of the day, the day of the Lord, and judgment, and bringing in the kingdom is not my responsibility It's not my job. Doesn't that take a load off of you? Because isn't that kind of overwhelming to you? To fix everything that's out there? I, I get the news headlines. I don't even read the news in all honesty. It's too depressing. I find myself provoked. I read the headlines and just say, okay, that's it. I'm tapping out. I'm done. I can't take it anymore. I can't change it. It's okay. I don't have to. Christ will. And that means a lot of things. One of which, I don't have to wait for Israel or Russia or Iran or Saudi Arabia or the United States to become a Christian nation. Christ will come. And he'll make the world his people. And it's not incumbent on me to do it. In fact, Christ has never had a nation. 
except the people of Israel. And He will redeem them. And I don't need to fret. Is stuff outside these walls a mess? Absolutely. But I don't need to fret because Christ will come and He will resolve it. Not my job. His job. Let Him do it. And these chapters are a reminder of that. Secondly, the judgment of the day of the Lord is not for the believer. The judgment that is coming is not against me. Okay, let's take a collective sigh of relief. (sighs) I'm not in his sights for judgment. On what basis can I say that? Because Christ was. And he poured out his judgment against Christ. Which means I'm safe. He's not vindictive against me. He's not angry against me. And that should be our great encouragement. The hope of the day of the Lord is that it also gives us wisdom to encourage one another. Remember that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? He tells us what is coming so that we will be encouraged and so that we encourage one another. God has not destined us for wrath, 1 Thess 5, 9. We're not under wrath. We're not under judgment. We're not under the day of the Lord that's coming for His discipline and His wrath. But we have been destined for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're dead or alive, we will together live with Him. Verse 11, 1 Thess 5, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Remind each other, hey, hey, Christ is coming. Don't despair. Get rid of the long face. Christ is coming. And then, the reality of the day of the Lord also encourages us to be bold with the gospel. Because we've been spared, but a great many have not. And if they don't repent, they'll experience His wrath, both here and in eternity. And don't you want to see them spared? They need Christ. He's their only hope. We've got to tell them that Christ died for their sins, was buried, was resurrected, is ascended into heaven, is co-regent with God on the heavenly throne And he's coming for his own. And that's the only hope. And we must believe. And we must follow. Thinking about these things makes us bold with that. So God has spoken. Yes, things in this world are hard. And they will get harder. But he has spoken. And he has promised. My day will come. And the day of the Lord will come and we will be safe and we will be secure. Father, we thank you.